I would never be a Christian because they're so fake and so judgmental. I know people that are just kind of all talk and they don't really live it. They always think that they're the only ones that are right and they're the only ones that know everything. The Christian people I know are just, they just hang out with each other. They don't hang out with anybody else. They're like only hanging out with Christian people and not loving everybody else as they're supposed to, I guess. I could never be a part of a group of people that are just so smug and arrogant that they think just because they're saved or whatever, they're set for life. But, you know, they see people around with everyday problems and they do nothing about it. And they claim to be part of this revolution, but, I mean, they're not even really starting a revolution. They're just basically all talking, not really showing it. It's so annoying when you talk to them and they don't, they don't know anything about their religion and you'll ask them, like, a hard question about the Bible, but they'll just be like, uh, Jesus is sweet. If, if they're not just hanging out with each other, uh... They're, they're just talking crap about everybody. And then they just make make their little excuses like, you know, it's okay. We're Christians. We can do that because, you know, we still love each other. But, you know, you can't just go around and talk crap about each other. They always try to get me saved, but really, they can't even fix their own lives. I would just never be a part of that. Those are uh, harsh words. And I don't know about you, but I find that video to be heartbreaking. Um, hearing the words of young people who have obviously had bad experiences with Christians. Uh, it makes me feel that, in general, we Christians in the world are doing a, a kind of a poor job of pointing the world to Christ. Clearly, there's a need for Christians to be living lives that demonstrate the truth of the gospel and point others to Christ rather than living in ways that give others reason to reject following Jesus. In the scripture that we're studying today, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we find Paul writing to the church in Philippi, and he's encouraging them to display the truth of the gospel by their good conduct. The reality is that today's world is watching the church and waiting for any reason to oppose us. By God's grace, Christians can display the truth of the gospel to the watching world through our gospel-worthy conduct. Now, you might hear that statement and wonder, what does that conduct look like in a practical sense? Well, we're going to get some ideas from this passage today in Philippians about some different attributes of gospel-worthy conduct that we can display to the world. Let's begin with reading today's scripture if you'll get your Bibles out and turn with me to the first chapter of Philippians, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. This is 27 through 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So first, this passage shows us that by God's grace, Christians can display the gospel-worthy attribute of unity. Now in verse 27, we read Paul's instruction that whatever happens, the Philippians should conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
Now, at the time of this writing, Paul was in jail, and he's, he's been in there for a while. He was awaiting a trial. Um, he's probably been there for a couple of years, actually. And he had just finished telling the Philippian church that he wasn't quite sure what his fate would be, but that he was sure that no matter what happened to him, Christ would be exalted. He told them in verses 23 through 26 that even though he wasn't sure about the outcome exactly, he was confident he would live to see them again, but he clearly had no idea about when exactly that would be. So when in verse 27 he says, whatever happens, he's referring both to his circumstances in jail, but he's also referring to their circumstances because he knows that the Philippian church faced persecution and opposition from outside the church, but they were also struggling with internal unrest among the believers. So whatever happens refers both to him and to them. And the language Paul is using here would have reminded the Philippians um, of the idea of citizenship, that they needed to have good citizenship. They lived in a city that was extremely proud of the Roman heritage that they had. And Paul was telling them that rather than being just like the Roman pagans all around them, they should be living in a way that honors their heavenly citizenship. So he follows this instruction that they should conduct themselves in a worthy manner with some clarification about what that means. Standing firm in the one spirit and striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And he's talking about the importance of a couple of different kinds of unity here. First, the Philippians need to be standing firm against the external opposition in the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And it was that one Holy Spirit that was the source of unity for the believers, both with each other and with God. Now second, Paul says that the Philippians should be striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And with this instruction, Paul was speaking of the circumstances of disunity within the body. Now, we get a clearer picture of what that disunity looked like later on in the letter. Uh, Philippians 4.2, Paul pleads with two specific women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, obviously, they had some kind of disagreement, and it was causing fractures within the church. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this to the Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the others." Clearly, this is a problem for the Philippians, and Paul urgently wanted them to address it. The Philippian church must have unity if they're going to continue to spread the gospel in the face of the opposition that they had in Philippi. Now, I spoke a little bit about the Philippians, the, the city of Philippi being a Roman colony, and that was kind of where all of their opposition came from. 
It's difficult to say exactly what this opposition looks like because it's not spelled out in the scripture, but we can take an educated guess. And one thing that we know about the city of Philippi is that it was this Roman colony and the uh, imperial cults, the worship of the emperor, was very strong there. Uh, At every public gathering, the citizens would proclaim that Caesar is Lord, and Caesar claimed the titles of Savior and Lord. So you could see why this might be a problem for the Philippian church, because they had a different Savior and Lord, right? So they saw themselves as citizens of heaven, rather than citizens primarily of Philippi. And they were devoted to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, not Caesar. And one commentator said about their situation that believers in Christ could scarcely be more out of touch with the sympathies of the local populace than in a place like Philippi. It seems that the unbelieving Philippians might have viewed Christians with suspicion and hostility And that is why it was so important for the Philippian church to be unified in the Holy Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It's it's easy to talk about unity and to see, to understand that it would be important, but um, we're going to do a little illustration here. And so uh, my guys that I talked to before church, I want you to come up here and come on and stand right over here. And uh, got some handy rope over here. Just come stand right over here. Stand together. All right. Um, and I'm going to need the younger kids who are in here. If you're younger. And so let's see, like Esri and Kylie and who else? You guys, just if you're a kid and you're in here, come on up too. All right. Okay, so we're just going to, here, Alexi, can you just hold that right there? Yeah. All right. We're going to wrap these guys up in this rope. Then we're going to see how, yeah, there, take that. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get these guys all tangled up here. All right. Yeah, let's put this through here. Give yourself a little slack there. Okay. Uh, I want you guys uh, to come on over here. And we're going to start with Kylie. Kylie, will you come on over here for me? And I want you to take hold of the end of this rope. Whoops. I want you to take hold of this rope. And I want you to try and move these guys. Just pull. Pull as hard as you can on this right here. Just grab on and pull. Can you, can you pull a little harder? Pull a little harder. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's not working. Okay. All right. Ezri, your turn. Give a pull. Guys, don't move. Don't let them pull you, okay? You gotta hold hold still. Oh, Esri, yeah, pretty good. Okay, let's see who's next. Come on up. Come on up. Guys, get your plant your feet. You gotta resist these guys. Okay, pull as hard as you can. Yeah, it's not working. It's not working. I I don't think I could pull these guys. Come on. All right, who's next? Who wants to give it a try? Pull as hard as you can. I'm serious. Like put your back into it. Come on. <laughs> All right, that was pretty good. All right, I think we're going to have to work together. What do you think, guys? You think, let's, all right. Everybody grab onto this rope. Get up here. Get up here. 
All right, we don't want to hurt these guys, but we do want to move them, okay? So grab on, get in here, grab a part of the rope, and you're gonna, I'm going to say go, and you're going to start pulling. So ready, set, go. Pull, pull as hard as you can. Come on, guys. Pull as hard as you can. <laughs> All right. Okay, okay, that's good. You can stop. You can stop. You can stop. All right, thank you. Thank you. You guys can go sit down. <laughs> thank you. All right, so they needed to be unified. <laughs> you, got, you good? You good, Scott? Okay. These kids, they tried as hard as they could. They were pulling hard. But on their own, they couldn't do it. It wasn't until they got together in unity and pulled together, and we can just leave it there, that's all right, that they were able to move this uh, unmovable force. (laughs) And this is what Paul wanted for the Philippians. He wanted them to pull together in unity just like these kids did. It seems obvious that unity was an issue for the Philippians in their specific circumstances. Paul mentioned how grateful he was for their partnership, and he urged them to be unified in today's passage, and also in chapter 2, and again in chapter 4. And if these were the only instructions in the whole Bible for people to be unified, it would be enough, right? Because it's pretty, pretty clear, pretty strong instruction. But it's not the only instruction. Paul talks about the importance of unity among believers throughout all of his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives his great discourse about the body of Christ and about how we're each different parts of the body. And he says in verse 24 and following, But God has put the body together, giving, them greater honor, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then again, to the Colossian believers, Paul says in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's important to note that this unity doesn't just come from the believers. It flows out of their unity with the Lord. It makes sense then in order for us to have unity with one another We have to have that unity with Christ first. And Jesus prays for all the believers in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, saying, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. In John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, the apostle gives instruction about how we can know that we're in unity with God. He says, This is how we know that we live in him and him in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And then just a few verses later, John points out more evidence. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Are you beginning to see just how important this idea of unity is for us as believers? Because our unity with one another is so crucial and so connected to our unity with Christ, we must take it seriously if we want to begin to change the way believers are perceived by the world. I challenge you to take time both to pray for and actively work toward greater unity with the Spirit. A great way to do that is through the practice of spiritual disciplines. I'm not going to go into a lot of what that is today, but things like scripture study, prayer, fasting, worship, these things are important, and they strengthen our bond with the Father. I want to encourage you, though, if you want to, to think about how you can start incorporating more spiritual disciplines into your life, um, to talk to me, talk to Pastor James, talk to your small group, and ask for ideas and accountability on how to do that. Now, in addition to our unity with the Spirit, I want to challenge you also to work on your unity with other believers. Look for opportunities to work with other Christians for the advancement of the gospel. Be humble and patient and forgiving toward your Christian brothers and sisters so that nothing is standing in your way of your unity with one another. Being united with the Spirit and with one another allows us to accomplish things that we couldn't do on our own strength. But sometimes it's not a lack of unity that keeps us from engaging the world on behalf of the gospel. Sometimes it's fear or intimidation. But by God's grace, Christians can display the gospel-worthy attribute of confidence. Now back to our text for today, in verse 28 Paul continues to describe the kind of conduct he wants from the Philippian Christians. He says, Conduct yourselves in unity with the Spirit and one another, like we talked about, and then without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. You've already heard about some of the opposition the Philippian Christians uh, might have faced from their fellow citizens, but what would that have looked like in their daily lives? It's hard to say exactly for sure, but it probably would be safe to say that they faced ridicule, 
They faced hostility from their neighbors, at the very least, and possibly even worse. The Philippians were suffering, and if they were going to go through the same struggle that Paul was having, as he says in the next verses, it's possible that some of them were even being imprisoned for their faith. The terrible persecution that took of Christians that took place under the Emperor Nero hadn't quite really gotten started. Um, but if this letter was written in the early AD 60s, as most scholars think that it was, uh, Nero was already the emperor. He started in AD 54. And so while he wasn't yet uh, using Christians as human bonfires to light up his garden parties, which he did later on, uh, this general hostility toward Christians and persecution might have been starting to gain some momentum. And Paul was well aware of the Philippians' circumstances. He must have known that they wouldn't have been getting any better anytime soon also. Because he gives these instructions about how to handle opponents and the attitude to take regarding their suffering. He also gives them hope and consolation, though. He says this in the second half of verse 28. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Paul wants the Philippians to know that their salvation is secure, that they're being persecuted for the sake of Christ and for the gospel, and that such persecution should remind them of their salvation by God, should give them confidence to know that even though they're currently facing opposition, their ultimate outcome is salvation. So while the fate of those who oppose them are facing destruction, they are being saved. Paul had just finished telling them back in verse 21 that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew and he wanted to reassure them that they had nothing to fear from their opponents because God had granted them salvation through their faith in Christ. Now, as Americans, we don't really have a great concept of the kind of fear and intimidation that such persecution would um, inspire in people. It's hard to understand what it would have been like for those ancient Christians. And I wonder if it would have made them feel incapacitated, unable to move forward. I, I want to try and give us an idea of what that might feel like, so I'm going to stretch your imagination a little bit here. I want you to imagine that you're hiking through a steamy forest in India. The air is hot and thick with moisture. And the sweat is trickling down your neck and your clothes are sticking to you. And you can hear the sounds of birds and insects and small animals through the, through the brush. And the sun reaches through the trees and it makes a, a dappled pattern on the floor of the forest. And there are colors and plants all around that you've never seen before. You can smell strange and exotic perfumes and smells of plants and animals that are totally foreign to your experience in Spokane. And as you stroll along, you begin to notice that the jungle noises start to become silent. But you don't really know what that means. You don't really start to think about it. my heart going a little bit. And according to scientific research, 
The roar of a tiger can literally paralyze its prey with fear, allowing the tiger to easily just come on and attack and kill. Easy pickings. Something about the frequency of the sound can actually cause animals to freeze in place. So even though we're sitting here in church, thousands of miles away from that jungle, and even though I know that that tiger's roar is a recording that I found on YouTube, I still feel my heart speed up a little bit when I hear it. And I can easily imagine the effect that such a roar would have if I were actually walking through that jungle. And the reality is that we are often paralyzed by our fears. We forget that we have reason to be confident. Our confidence comes directly from the Lord and from the certainty of our salvation. There are hundreds of places in Scripture that reassure us of God's mighty power and the fact that we need not fear. I'm going to read several of them to you, and I want you to simply listen and let the words soak into your soul and give you strength. Psalm 46, 1 through 3 and 10 and 11. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 27, 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Now our confidence is in the strength of the Lord, and it's also in the surety of our salvation. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. John 5, 24. Very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Romans 5, 10, and 11. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received our reconciliation. And then there's Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He did not he who did not spare his own son but who gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen It is God who testifies Who then is the one who condemns No one Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us Who shall separate us from the love of God of Christ Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written for your sake we face death all day long We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered No in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord Because of what God has done for us through Christ we can be confident and face opposition without fear knowing that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We don't have to be crippled by our fears because the Lord Almighty is with us and he is our ever-present help in trouble. In light of this truth, I want to encourage you to think about what fears you might have in relation to sharing the gospel and remind yourself that if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. Ask God to remind you of the confidence that comes from being united with him and sure in your salvation and then take a step of faith no matter how small in sharing your life with a non-believer. Having confidence in the Lord and in the surety of our salvation not only allows us to face our opposition without fear, it's also a major part of being able to persevere through faith in 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 our, all of our opposition and in our struggles. And by God's grace, Christians can display the gospel-worthy attribute of perseverance. And to be honest, I would love to just skip over these next couple of verses. Cuz what they tell me makes me very uncomfortable. But in order to see things the way that they really are, we have to embrace the whole truth of scripture. And so and not just the parts that that make us feel warm and fuzzy. Let me read it to you again. Philippians 1:29 through 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul's telling the Philippians that struggles, the struggles that they're having and that he's experiencing are inevitable for those who follow Christ. And this is a truth that is hard for us to understand sometimes. It causes many people to question whether the God we serve is actually a good God. Why does our discipleship have to come with suffering? In talking about these two verses, theologian Gordon Fee explains Paul's words like this. Literally, Paul says, "To you has been graciously given on behalf of Christ to suffer on his behalf." A crucified lord produces disciples who themselves take up a cross as they follow him. 
We are thus to live on behalf of Christ in the same way Christ himself lived and died, on behalf of this fallen, broken world. That is why salvation includes suffering on behalf of Christ. For believers, as for our Lord, the path to glorification leads through the suffering of the cross. If you're like me, right now you might be thinking, well, that stinks. I don't like that. No one in their right mind wants to suffer. Paul didn't enjoy suffering, and he didn't—he wasn't telling the Philippians that they should enjoy their suffering either. Jesus didn't enjoy his suffering. He begged God to let him out of it if there was any way. Instead, Paul is acknowledging that there is a cost to following Jesus. But the end result of our salvation is worth it. I thank God that Jesus thought the end result of his suffering was worth it for us. What I think we should take away from what Paul is saying here is that if we are believers who strive to become increasingly more like our Savior Jesus... We have to accept the inevitable hard parts along with the glorious ones. The ability to persevere in the faith through the suffering is what the world will see and take note of. What does perseverance look like for us? I want to tell you about what I like to call the Great Chicken Massacre of 2015 and 16. Now back in early September of last year, We had a happy flock of nine chickens. You can see them up there. We were, uh, we had raised some of them from from just babies. And we were looking forward to lots of fresh eggs to eat and to share with others. And then it happened. Over the course of a few weeks, some villainous creature snuck into the yard at night and murdered our chickens one at a time. And after each horrific... (laughs) morning discovery, we did what we could to better secure the coop. We tried several different strategies, um, but the creature persevered. It was like he had his very own all-you-can-eat chicken buffet, and he was not giving up. It seemed that no matter what we did to deter the marauding beast, nothing worked. Finally, we were down to just three hens, and we had had enough. We built what we thought was a veritable chicken Fort Knox. (laughs) And for a time, the chickens were safe. In fact, we had a whole year of peace. And during that time, we rebuilt the flock back up to another eight little hens. Oh, they're so cute. Look at at how cute they were. Unfortunately, we underestimated the perseverance of hungry predators. And early on the morning of September 15th, 2016, we discovered that another massacre had occurred, this time resulting in total chicken annihilation. I'm very sad about the loss of our hens. Um, But I have to admit that a very small part of me admires the perseverance of that chicken murderer, who after a whole year was able to break into Fort Klux and make off with the loot. 
I'm not saying that I want us Christians to behave like predators. Hear me. But I do think that we can learn something from this beast. It never gave up in its quest to eat my chickens, despite everything we did to stop it, and eventually it was victorious. And we in America and the West have generally not had to deal with much in the way of persecution. But times are changing. With things going the way they are in our country, we may expect to see more and more opposition and persecution for our faith. This should not be a surprise to us, and it should not be a discouragement. For while Scripture does promise that we will have trouble, it also promises that God will help us to persevere in the faith. Let's look at a few examples of God's promises for our perseverance. Psalm 37, 7 through 9, and 39 and 40. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, excuse me, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil, for those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The salvation of the righteousness comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Isaiah 41, 9 through 13. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. John 16:33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And Hebrews Hebrews 10:32 through 39 Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. The pages of this book are full of God's promises to help his people persevere. Don't be surprised when you suffer for the sake of the gospel. Rather, rejoice in the fact that God has promised to help you persevere. When you encounter suffering, opposition, or persecution for your faith, because you surely will at some point or another, cling to the promises of Scripture and continue to persevere in the work of the gospel.
Any opposition we face from the world because of our belief in Christ should not be feared, but rather viewed as an opportunity to receive God's help in perseverance. Our perseverance will be an obvious sign to the world of our faith to the, in, in the Lord our God. Now, as we come to a close, I want you once more to test your imagination. I want you to imagine a person standing on a stage in front of a crowd of thousands in the glare of the spotlights. Every movement, every flaw is on display and it's visible, even to those who are sitting up in the nosebleeds. And those in the audience are harsh critics. We Christians are that person standing on the stage. The world judges us and our beliefs by what they see. And while we continue to be imperfect and we will inevitably fail and make mistakes, we should make every effort to represent the gospel in a way that honors Christ. Part of this effort includes how we behave in the face of opposition, both in our relationships with one another and in our personal conduct as well. Now, by God's grace and with his help, believers can show the watching world the truth of the gospel to which we cling. This passage of scripture shows that some of the best ways of doing that are through our unity, through our confidence, and through our perseverance. And with that in mind, I urge you to take every opportunity to live in unity with the Spirit and with others. Remember the promises of the Lord to give you confidence in the face of fear and to help you persevere. And don't shrink away from suffering and opposition. And may God bless you and keep you as you go out and live the truth of the gospel before a watching world. Let me pray. Lord, we are grateful for your promises. We're grateful that you allow us to have unity with you and with one another. We're grateful that we can have confidence in your mighty power and in the enduring quality of our salvation. And Lord, we are grateful that you will have promised to help us persevere. I ask, Lord, that as we go from here today, you would help us to be mindful of the ways that we can work together in unity for, this, for the continuing of the gospel. Help us to be mindful of the ways that the world is viewing our Christian faith. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to represent you in the best way that we can so that those who are watching can know that you have loved us and you sent your son to save us. We do love you, Lord. And we pray all these things in your glorious name. Amen. Please stand.